Today's reading is going to be from Psalm chapter 8, verses 1 through 9, if you would like to read along. So listen now to the reading of God's holy and inerrant word. O Lord, our Lord, how majestic is your name in all the earth. You have set your glory above the heavens. Out of the mouths of babies and infants, you have established strength because of your foes to still the enemy and the avenger. When I look at your heavens, the work of your fingers, the moon and the stars which you have set in place, what is man that you are mindful of him, and the son of man that you care for him? Yet you have made him a little lower than the heavenly beings, and crowned him with glory and honor. You have given him dominion over the works of your hands. You have put all things under his feet, all sheep and oxen, and also the beasts of the field, the birds of the heavens, and the fish of the sea whatever passes along the paths of the seas. O Lord, our Lord, how majestic is your name in all the earth. The grass withers and the flowers fade, but the word of our God stands forever. Gracious Heavenly Father, um, we do come before you and ask that you would speak, that you would speak to each of us individually as well as corporately, that you would deal with us as we come through these doors this morning, because some of us come through these doors this morning and we're excited to be with your people and to hear from you, and yet others come and are facing great difficulties in life and um, needing just a moment of respite. Uh, Still others come and full of doubts and skepticism and others assured of the truth of Your Word. Father, however we come this morning, um, we pray that You would meet with each of us, that You would reveal to us through Your Word that we really are all the same even despite our differences, that we're all far more broken than we could ever imagine ourselves to be. And so together we need the good news of the gospel. We need to be reminded that because of what Jesus has done and accomplished for us, we can at the same time be both far more broken than we could ever imagine and also far more loved and secure and accepted and approved of than we could have ever dared dream was possible. So we pray that you would take us to this good news in Jesus, for it's in his name that we pray. Amen. Please be seated. And the children, ages three to first grade, you're dismissed to Children's Church. If you make your way to the back of the sanctuary, someone will take you to your class. For the rest of you, uh, this summer, we're looking at a different psalm each Sunday, Uh, a a summer in the psalms. Uh, It's it's got a decent ring to it. We ought to put that on the website. But um, this morning, we're continuing that series, and we're looking at this beautiful poem, this beautiful song that we read earlier in Psalm chapter 8. And, um, and here's what I want to say to you from the beginning. I think we may all express this in different ways, um, but all of us long to find, to, to touch, or to capture ultimate beauty. Um, a, a beauty that fills our lives with wonder and awe, a a beauty that fills our lives with value and purpose and significance and and meaning, a beauty that can come into our lives that if we have it, 
will set us free. Um, now, in saying that, I know that many of us have been, uh, we become cynical and we become hardened to this idea um, because the truth is life has, has reared back and kicked us in the teeth many times. Um, in my favorite Rocky movie, um, the fictional character Rocky Balboa, he says to his son, the world ain't all sunshine and rainbows. It's a very mean and nasty place. It will beat you to your knees. And nobody, nothing hits as hard as life. And so I think I get it and understand it that, that we have become cynical and hardened. Um, but I want you to think about this. Even our bitter, skeptical cynicism and disappointment, it's proof that deep in our heart is this longing to get in touch with, to capture ultimate beauty. Because why else would we be bitter? Why else would we be disappointed? In the late 90s, uh, there's a great little movie called As Good As It Gets. I know I'm dating myself for some, for some of y'all here, but Jack Nicholson in this movie, he played this terribly grumpy, hardened, mean, obsessive, compulsive character named Melvin. And life circumstances put him in a relationship with this waitress played by Helen Hunt named Carol. And he was just constantly making these incredibly rude, cutting, and hurtful remarks. And in this one scene, if you've seen this movie, maybe you'll remember this. The two of them are, are seated at dinner across from one another at the table and uh, at a restaurant. And he puts his foot in his mouth once more. And he says just something incredibly hurtful and mean to her. And she gets up to walk out on him. But he begs her to stay. And she demands that if she's going to stay, he has to give her one compliment. He has to say just one nice, encouraging thing to her. And so he says, you know, sit down. I've got a really great compliment for you. And it's true, too. Um, and so she's so accustomed to his hurtful remarks that she says, I'm so afraid you're about to say something truly awful. Um, he goes on to explain that his doctor, his psychiatrist, says that he has this ailment, um, and he needs to take these pills. And he goes on and on to talk about how much he hates pills. He says, I'm, I'm using the word hate for pills. Just over and over he's talking about he's obsessive-compulsive, right? And he's scared of these pills, and he's scared to take them, so he never takes them. And then he leans in to tell her that his great compliment to her is that after he met her, he started taking the pills. And she's confused. Um, and she says, I don't quite get how that's a compliment for me. And he looks across the table and he says to her very plainly, you make me want to be a better man. And see, he was saying captivated by your beauty, in awe and wonder of who you are, I don't want to stay the same. I want to change. I want to be different. I want to become a better man. He's saying, your beauty has conquered my fears, 
And it's given my life new meaning, new value and purpose and significance. And listen, that's just a taste of what we're looking to find. What we're looking to capture and hold on to, we hunger for ultimate beauty that will come into our lives and set us free and fill our lives with significance and value and meaning, something that it would be so grand that it could pull us into its orbit and transform us. The shepherd boy, David, he's given us a poem about this ultimate beauty, and he tells us in Psalm 8 how we can get it. So here's what I want to show you from Psalm chapter 8 this morning. Just three things. I want to show you first the powerful artistry of God, and then second, the conflicted identity of mankind, and then third and finally, the captivating beauty of God's grace. Okay, first, the powerful artistry of God. The psalm here, Psalm 8, it's bookended um, with the same phrase at at its opening and its closing uh, verse. O Lord, our Lord, how majestic is your name in all the earth. You you know what majestic means, right? It it means grand, it means glorious, it means splendid. What it means is beautiful, right? What is it that David, what is it that has David calling God himself ultimate beauty? First thing, is it's his recognition of the powerful artistry of God. You can imagine uh, David writing this psalm, a shepherd boy. He spent all night lying on his back, keeping watch over his flock, and he's looking up into the heavens, and he sees all of these stars, and he writes verse 3, "'When I look at your heavens, the work of your fingers, the moon and the stars which you have set in place.'" Verse 1, "'You have set your glory above the heavens.'" What he's confronted with is God's power, the bigness of God he sees in the night sky. You know, with the naked eye, we're told that we can see something like 5,000 stars at a time. With just a four-inch telescope, that number jumps to 200 million. We live in the Milky Way galaxy, and all the estimates are that in our own galaxy, there are about 500 billion stars. Now, that's just our galaxy. You remember the Hubble telescope orbiting the earth out there somewhere? Um, That Hubble telescope has shown us that there's an estimated 100 billion galaxies out there right? And and I was doing some reading on this this week, and with all the technological advances that they're making right now, it's estimated that we will soon be able to see and identify 200 billion galaxies. Now, if that's how big our universe is, then how big, how powerful must the God who made it all be? I mean, the heavens and the billions of galaxies, they can't contain His glory, is what David is saying here. His glory is above the heavens. But that's not all that captivated David's imagination and his reflection. You hear what David said in verse 3? He says that all the heavens are the work of God's fingers. You know, often when the Bible wants to emphasize God's power, it uses a metaphor of God's hand 
or God's arm, right? His powerful, outstretched arm, his mighty hand. You read things like this in the prophets and the Psalms, right? But fingers, right? Fingers aren't about power. Fingers are about attention to detail, Right? You use your fingers to build a model. You use your fingers to draw a picture, to paint a picture. David is saying this powerful God of the universe who made all of this, he's also an artist. Right? He's saying, I don't just see God's power. I also see the intricacy. I see the delicacy. I see the artistry of his design and everything, every detail. He made all of this just for the delight and the beauty of it. No wonder he calls God majestic. He sees God's powerful artistry. He sees the astounding beauty of the heavens and realizes that they are a reflection of ultimate beauty, of the ultimate beauty who made it all with his fingers. God made the world to sing God made the world to reflect His beauty back to Him. You know, the period of the Renaissance produced some amazing artists, right? Um, Painters like Michelangelo, um, Da Vinci, and Picasso, right? And and there was a saying um, among artists that's first documented. Maybe it goes back even further than that, but it was first documented in the Renaissance period. Um, Michelangelo, Picasso, Da Vinci, they all used it as well as many others. And that saying was this, every painter paints himself, right? They were saying that great art isn't and never has been solely a depiction of the exterior world. Right? Great art doesn't just copy or depict nature. It reveals the inner being of the artist who's doing the painting. Right? It tells you about the artist. The heavens declare the glory of God. The sky above proclaims his handiwork. Day after day they pour forth speech. That's what, how David puts it in Psalm 19. Reflecting on the myriads of stars in the heavens, right? The pale beauty of the moon set in the, the sky's dark canvas. It, it led David to reflect on the powerful artistry of God. Nature's beauty led David to reflect on ultimate beauty, God himself. Now, listen, before we move on, let me give you just two simple applications here. One more related to God's power and the other more related to his artistry. One, if God made all this... If the heavens can't contain His glory, and if He placed the stars individually with His fingers and set the moon in its place, then He does not exist to be your butler in life. He's the king. If this is who God is, you don't work to fit fit Him into your life. If this is who God is, you were meant to fit into His life into His will. A God like this has to be at the very center of your life. And then second, if the beauty you and I behold in God's artwork, His creation, if it's just a reflection of His ultimate beauty, then anything less than ultimate beauty, it will never be enough to truly capture the deepest longings of your heart. 
Only when you are caught up into this ultimate beauty will your soul find true delight, joy, meaning, value, and purpose. Okay, second, let's move on. Let's talk about the conflicted identity of mankind. See, David's reflection on God's powerful artistry, right, it immediately caused him to reflect on himself. Verse 4, what is man, he says. And what David shows us in the verses that follow is he shows us the conflicted identity of mankind. He's saying in these verses that mankind is great and weak, that mankind is a ruler And yet mankind is fragile. That mankind has dignity, but at the same time mankind feels worthless. That mankind wonders at his own glory and yet feels insignificant. In verses 5 through 8, David looks backwards to creation. All right, those verses, 5 through 8, they're a poetic recapitulation of Genesis chapters 1 and 2, right? Man was created a little lower than the heavenly beings. He was crowned with glory and honor. I mean, David is saying, man was made in the very image of God. Mankind was given dominion to rule over God's works. We were made to rule right? We were, we were made to rule and not be ruled by God's creation. We were made to be free. All of creation was made to reflect God's beauty back to Him. All of creation was made to sing God's glory. And mankind was not only meant to join in that chorus, but mankind was meant to lead that chorus, right? No matter who you are or what you've done or where you've been in life, What these verses are telling you is that you have dignity. You're crowned with glory and honor. Right? These verses are saying, you were made for greatness. We feel that sometimes, don't we? Sometimes more clearly than others. We feel this pull in our lives that we were made for so much more. Right? That you were made... And you are meant to feel your sense of worth and value. That you are made for something grand and glorious. That your life was meant to be full of meaning and purpose and significance. You were made to grasp ultimate beauty. I mean, listen, the sheep with David, they aren't asking what is sheepiness, right? They weren't writing beautiful poetry, They weren't aspiring after beauty like David. That pull to greatness, to realizing our true dignity, that is a uniquely human experience being made in God's image, right? But that's not the whole story here. Our identity, David is showing us, is conflicted, right? In the same breath, we see our dignity and our value and that pull to greatness. We feel worthless, a lot of the time. We feel small. We feel insignificant. We feel adrift in the world, right? We often wonder if our lives really matter at all. The Hebrew words for man that are used in verse 4, they're they're two different words, and they're unique words um, because they are communicating man's weakness and his mortality. This would be something of a more literal translation where David is saying, what is fragile man that you are mindful of him and mortal man 
that you care for him. And we feel this tension, this conflict deep within us. We strive to aspire greatness. We long and aspire, right, to capture beauty, and yet we're made painfully aware in this life of our weakness, our frailness, our brokenness. A few weeks ago, I heard this great interview with the artist and singer Moby. Um, Some of you know that name, others don't, doesn't really matter. His career, it really peaked in the, in the late 90s, early 2000s. Um, after years of struggling, finally he broke through, his career broke through into just incredible success and achievement, and he sold over 20 million albums, and he made tons of money, and he experienced the heights of fame. And in this interview that I listened to, um, he spoke about his experience of fame. And I wrote down what he said. Um, He said this, The real kick in the teeth of fame is that if you don't have it, you beat yourself up because you don't have it. And if you do get it, you're miserable and you want to kill yourself. He explained, Literally, the most depressed I've ever been in my entire life was at the height of my professional success. I remember this one moment so clearly. I was at the MTV Awards in Barcelona, and there's this hotel in Barcelona called the Arts Hotel in Barcelona, and it's so beautiful. And at the tippity-top of the hotel, they have four three-bedroom apartments. And I was in one, P. Diddy was in one, John Bon Jovi was in one, and Madonna was in the other one. The first night, I invited some people over to look at the view and have some drinks. And I got more despondent. I literally, at the end of the evening before going to bed, was walking around this beautiful, insane apartment, crying, thinking about how I could get out the window to kill myself. I've never been more despondent. And he goes on to talk about how the windows just wouldn't open far enough for him to get through. And he says, the day before, I played a huge show. The next day, I won an MTV award and played more big shows. You think when you get where you want to go, finally, you'll be happy. But then you get to where you want to go, and you're just as miserable as you were. You're even more miserable. It's a fascinating interview. Um, Fascinating partly because it's not all that unique. I've heard lots of famous people say a variation of the same kind of thing, right? Right? This is a loose paraphrase of something I once heard the apologist Ravi Zacharias say, but here it is. The darkest, loneliest, most despairing moment of life is when you've experienced what you thought would deliver the ultimate, and it's let you down. The terrible, painful disillusionment that getting this thing, arriving at this place, achieving this goal, right, finding this security, it was supposed to make everything in your life okay. It was supposed to make your life bearable. It was supposed to make you happy. It was supposed to make your life better. But it cannot deliver. Listen, We feel it and we sense it, that we were made for so much more, that we're made for greatness, that we're made for significance, right, and purpose. And so in our weakness and in our fragility, we reach out and we grasp at something bigger than ourselves, right, something that we hope will be the ultimate for us. And maybe it's fame and maybe it's fortune, but that's probably not what it is for most of us in this room, right? 
But maybe it is getting married. If I could just find the right person, if I could just get the right person to love me, then that would make my life okay. That would make my life bearable. Or maybe it's working your way into the right social circles, getting connected to the right people. You know, that would prove that I have value in this world, that I'm significant. Or maybe it's getting a promotion or having kids or being thinner or prettier or whatever or committing yourself to some cause. All good things. But none of them are big enough, grand enough, beautiful enough for you. They cannot deliver. Right? And, and so we're enslaved to love and approval and money and appearance and career. And if you do arrive one day, if you do achieve what you're looking for, the empty disillusionment of it all, it will feel so hollow. Right? It will leave you more miserable than before. You were made for a beauty that will set you free to become what you were made to be. You are made for ultimate beauty, and nothing less will do. Okay, so that brings us to our last point. Finally, to talk about the captivating beauty of God's grace. See, here's the thing. If all you hear are points one and two, it is not enough for you this morning. Because you can come to the realization that, excuse me, that God is the ultimate beauty, and He's meant to be the very center of your life. And you can realize that you have to stop putting your hope in anything less than God. And all that's really, really important. But we're weak, and we're fragile, and we're going to fail. And it's going to crush us if all we have is points one and two. What we need is the captivating beauty of God's grace. Rainier Rilke, he was an Austrian poet in the late 19th and early 20th century. And, excuse me, one day he went to a museum and he sat down with pen and paper all day in front of a Greek statue of Apollo. Um, And after sitting for an entire day before this statue, just captivated with the artistry and this incredible beauty of this statue and the flawless intricacy and the attention to detail, he was moved and he wrote a poem. And after commenting on its beauty, it's not, not a very long poem, but I just want to read to you the last line. So he comments on all the beauty of this statue that he's seeing before him, and this is what he wrote in the last line. For there is no angle from which it cannot see you. You have to change your life. Another translation talks about the searing gaze that penetrates your soul and compels you to change. Truly captivating beauty, it pulls you into its orbit, right? It sets you free to get in line with its beauty. See, only when your soul has been penetrated by the captivating beauty of God's grace, I'm telling you, will you find true freedom, delight, and transformation. Because the beauty that David is describing here, it far exceeds anything that Renir Rilke saw in that statue, David was amazed and he was astounded that there he was, this little speck on God's canvas. But what does he say? God was mindful of him, verse 4. He's saying, here I am, I'm broken, I'm weak, I'm small, I'm fragile, and yet I matter to the God whose glory is above the heavens. He's mindful of me. 
He thinks about me. His thoughts are captivated with me. Every detail of my life is under his watchful eye. Ultimate beauty itself loves me and cares for me. And it astounded him. It amazed him. In the second part of verse 4, David wonders that God is not just mindful of him, but that God cares for him. You know, this past week, I was reading Charles Spurgeon as I'm getting ready for this week, and I realized that the old King James version of this verse is a much more accurate translation. Um, It sounds a little strange to us, but the word that's used there, the Hebrew word that's used there for care is actually a word that means visit. And this is what the old King James says, what is the son of man that thou visitest him? Right? Visit to go out and find someone. I'm sorry, with all the coughing. To visit is to, to come and meet someone where they are, to come and meet you where you are. Now, can you imagine it? This is the captivating beauty of God's grace. The God who made all the galaxies with His fingers, you fill His mind He came searching to find you. He came to visit and meet you where you are. I mean, it's just a hint in Psalm 8. But centuries later, God himself did come. God himself, ultimate beauty itself, took on flesh and became a man. Ultimate beauty came for you. Ultimate beauty became touchable and holdable and graspable. And when he did that, he also became vulnerable. And he became hittable. And he became hurtable. And ultimately, he became killable for you. You were what was on his mind. When he cried out on the cross, it is finished. When at the cross, he met you where you were and took onto himself all your sin and died for you. And I'm asking you this morning, can you see this beautiful grace? Right? Jesus came and says, I won't let even death part me from you. He was willing to be forsaken by his father. He was willing to be parted from his father and die so that we would never be parted from him, so that we would have ultimate beauty in him forever and ever. You know, verse 2 in Psalm 8, it's a weird verse. It's a strange verse. Out of the mouths of babes and infants, you have established strength because of your foes to still the enemy and the avenger, and it doesn't feel like it fits the flow. And the scholar Derek Kidner, he wrote that the foes, the enemy, the avenger of verse 2 presents a challenge which God meets with what is weak in the world. You know, that's why Jesus quoted this verse. He only quoted one verse of this psalm in his life, and it was this verse. And he quoted it when he rode into Jerusalem on the back of a donkey to go and be crucified. And everyone had thought that when the Messiah comes, he's going to come in strength and power and wonder, and he's going to be on this mighty war horse, and he's going to come in, and he's going to beat back all of our enemies. And Jesus was saying, don't you know, don't you know that this is how God defeats evil in the world? 
through weakness and suffering and death. You, little old you, that's what you mean to God. You are made to be great. You have this much value and this much significance that God himself, he would come and die for you and defeat evil for you in his death. Let me end with just three very quick applications. And the first is this. You need to learn how to reflect. Listen, we often in our lives, we avoid deep reflection. We like to be distracted by all kinds of things in our lives because the silence, it terrifies us. God made you with a unique ability to reflect, to be still and to ponder the deep things of life. You need to lean into deep reflection about who God is and who you are. And God has given you his word so that you can do that. Reflect on the greatness, the bigness, the glory, the holiness of God. And also reflect on his compassion, his mercy, the captivating beauty of his grace. And the second thing is this. You need to learn how to own this personally. The psalm begins and ends like this. O Lord, our Lord. He came to visit you with His grace. God is not some abstract concept. He's a person, and He made you for a relationship with Himself. The personal pronouns of the Bible are what will make the gospel come alive for you in its captivating beauty. And finally and third, you need to learn how to sing. So you need to learn how to reflect you need to, what was the second thing? I gotta find my notes. You, you need to, that's how scatterbrained I am. You need to own this personally. And then third, you need to learn how to sing. Okay? David's reflection on God, David's realization that God made it possible for him to have a relationship with his maker and redeemer, that led him to write poetry. That led him to write music. That led him to sing. C.S. Lewis wrote, I think we delight to praise what we enjoy, because the praise not merely expresses, but completes the enjoyment. It is its appointed consummation. The delight is incomplete until it is expressed. David's reflection, David's understanding of God's personal relationship with him, it led him to sing, and it should do the same for us this very morning. Let's go before him now in prayer. Gracious Heavenly Father, we We praise you and thank you for your word this morning. Father, we pray that you would write it upon our hearts. We pray that you would captivate us with the beauty of your grace. That you would pull us into your orbit, that our lives would be centered upon you. That we would understand our conflicted identity made to be great and yet broken, and that that would cause us to wonder at your mercy and grace, that you gave your own Son to die for us so that we could have ultimate beauty forever and ever. For it's in Jesus' name that we pray. Amen.